Amen. Who believes that today? Amen. Yeah. Wow. These guys are on fire behind me today. I just want to keep praising. Amen. Amen. Who, who loves the fact that we're free to sing the praises of God here in this place? Yeah. You know, the Bible tells us that God inhabits the praise of his people. You know, think about that. That when we praise him, that he just shows up. He shows up because he's here for us. Amen. Let's keep praising him, church. No matter what, let's keep praising him. Amen? Amen. Amen. Well, I'm glad to be with you in person uh, today. It's a blessing to be able to gather as God's people, as his church, and worship him in spirit and in truth, and to open the word of God and be challenged and be encouraged by what he has for us this morning. Amen? Amen? You know, when I was a, a young boy, my dad a great outdoorsman, decided to take me fishing. And I remember I was about 10 years old the first time that he decided to take me fishing. And I went to bed knowing that the next morning I would wake up to a great adventure. And so that night I remember dreaming about how it would be going fishing with my father. I imagined the, the, the thrill of being able to throw my line into the water giant fish would just come and jump on the hook. And I would reel them in with great excitement and vigor and just celebrate with my father the great catch that we would have together. And again and again, I just kept thinking of how that would be, how exciting that would be, the thrill that would happen. And the next morning, I woke up to the reality. My dad got me up way earlier than I wanted to be up, threw me in the car, we drove on a very curvy road to, a, to a, a perfect spot that he had picked out. It was a creek with kind of some, some uh, pools there that we were supposed to be fishing in. And I think he didn't realize the water level was a little too low. And so he, uh, he showed me how to kind of put my bait on the hook and get the thing ready. And I threw it in there. And sure enough, I caught something right away. So I tried to reel it in and nothing happened. And I couldn't reel it in. I called for my dad. And... Uh, my dad came over, and, and he tried to yank on it, yanked on it, and the whole hook came off, and it, I had caught some limb at the bottom of the creek. And so I spent the next couple of hours just realizing that fishing was no fun, <laughs> that fishing was all about reconnecting the hook to a broken line and continuing that endeavor where, well, the fish just laughed and jumped near me and just, just mocked me with their tongues out. No, I don't even know if fish have tongues. But have you, ever, have you ever thought about that, that sometimes your perception of something doesn't match the reality? How many have ever been there? I know I was with my dad fishing, and so to this day, I am not a fisherman. I have to confess, Jesus called me to be a fisher of men, not to fish for fish anymore. And so, amen? Yes. So those of you who enjoy fishing, well, good on you. But uh, I won't be joining you. But let me just say that the disciples were with Jesus, and they're making their way to Jerusalem. And we're, we're going to be starting in Luke chapter 18. You're picking up the story here in Luke chapter 18 as we bring Jesus into focus in 2020. And boy, do we need to bring Jesus into focus this year. Amen? Amen. With everything that's happening in our world, it's so important to understand who Jesus is and what he's asking and calling us to be and do as his people. So important. 
And so we're here in Luke chapter 18, and he's been talking in Luke 17, he's been talking about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, and the disciples were like, yes, that's what we're all about. That's what we signed up for. We're excited. And the Pharisees were like, yeah, we know about the kingdom of God. We understand what's going to happen. There's going to be a Messiah who's going to come. A ruler for Israel. He's going to come and he's going to take over. And he's going to be great. And he's going to lead his people into victory. And we're excited about that. Because Rome is a pain in the butt. It's like living in California. There's all kinds of rules and regulations and none of them make any sense. And they're oppressive. And there's and many times they're frustrating. Amen? And that was what Rome was like, but it was even to the nth degree. We haven't seen anything yet here in California. Rome was a mess. Rome was a dictatorship that would impose all kinds of uh, just pressure on the people, especially the people of God, the Jews of that day. And so the Jews were looking forward. Their, their perception was a Messiah would come and he would usher in the kingdom. He would deliver them from the oppressive occupying force of the Roman Empire. And he would lead them into triumph. And they were excited for that. And they had all kinds of understandings of what that might look like. And Jesus began to talk to them about the kingdom of God in Luke chapter 17. If you didn't get a chance to hear from Pastor Jeff last week, he did an amazing job with this passage. I encourage you, I know it's online, you can go back and listen to it. But Jesus begins to tell them about the kingdom in Luke 17, and he talks about this idea that it's a, it's coming, but it's not coming in the way that they anticipated. And it's coming, but it's going to be a kingdom of, a spiritual kingdom, not a physical kingdom, at least initially. And yes, they, they were right, there would be one day there'd be a physical kingdom established on the earth, but that was in the, in the distant future. That was at a second coming of the Messiah. And so Jesus says, here I am, I'm ushering in the kingdom. But it's not how you guys expect. It's not what you expect. You need to be ready for the reality of what's ahead. And so he begins in Luke chapter 18 as we open the Bible this morning to our passage, explaining that to them some principles that they need to be understanding so that they are ready to embrace the kingdom of God. Join me in Luke 18, verse 1. He then told them a parable on the need for them to pray always and not become discouraged. There was a judge in a certain town who didn't fear God or respect man. This is kind of the this is what we anticipate of a, of a judge who is not a respecter of God, nor does he care about what man thinks or trying to impress people or gain their favor. This is a corrupt guy. This is some of the things you read about on the news when a judge makes a ruling that you just can't make sense of. Why would he rule like that? Does he have no fear of God? Does he not care about the fact that he's up for re-election? How many have ever tried to vote for a judge on their ballot and you can't find a single piece of information about the guy and you're supposed to say whether yes or no? 
right? I just vote no for all of them. I'm like, I don't like what's happening, so I vote no for everybody. That's my default, right? But in this day, Jesus tells a story, and they could, they could relate with this because there was a lot of corrupt judges in their day. There were a lot of judges who didn't fear God. They didn't have a reverence for a higher power, a higher authority that they had to answer to, nor did they care about what man thought. They were, they were satisfied within their own little realm, within their own little kingdom and authority. They had their needs met. They were financially stable. They didn't have to rely on anyone. So Jesus tells them a story that they could relate with. There was a judge in a certain town who didn't fear God or respect man. And a widow in that town kept coming to him saying, give me justice against my adversary. Now you have to understand in Jesus' day in the eastern realm this is that the judges would be circuit judges in other words they would move around from town to town and they would set up an outdoor venue in which to preside over their cases similar to what we have set up here outside on the back lawn here at crossroads and they would basically set up a tent from place to place and and when you heard that a judge was coming to your town, that was your opportunity to get things settled if you had a dispute with someone. If you felt like there was an injustice, you would have your opportunity from time to time. This is the picture that Jesus is describing. And you have to understand that the judge, not the law, set the agenda. Basically was in charge of the docket. Which cases would be heard that day? It was the judge's discretion. Similar to the Supreme Court. You guys know the Supreme Court can decide we don't want, to, we don't want that case. We're, that's not worthy of us. right? And they can throw that back down to the lower courts. They have the right as the Supreme Court of the land to decide which cases are important and which aren't to come before them. This was similar in Jesus' day. So he would come and he would sit in a tent surrounded by his assistants. And here comes the judge. Anybody could come and watch the proceedings outside. You could come and you could witness what was taking place, but only those who were approved and accepted could have their cases tried. This usually meant that the way to get on the docket was a little bit of a bribe, or, or you had to have some influence of some sort or another. In other words, the judge was like, what am I going to get out of it if I'm going to take your case? If I'm going to waste my precious time on your situation, what's in it for me? This was the kind of judges that would rule in that day. Could you see how corrupt that could, could be? Could you see how much injustice would take place within that atmosphere? So here comes, Jesus describes a widow. A widow came from that town and, and kept coming to him saying, give me justice against my adversary." Now, a widow had zero standing for three reasons. No influence, no opportunity to offer a bribe. Number one, she was a woman. And in that day, women, were, they didn't have the standing that we, we see women have been granted here in America. Many places around the world, women are not considered worthy of those types of situations. You don't have any standing. You're a woman. Where's your husband? Where's someone that can advocate for you? We don't want women in, that, in the courtroom. That's just wrong. You need to bring some, 
someone to represent you. So number one, she was a woman. She had to overcome that. Number two, she was a widow. She had no husband to stand with her. She had no advocate. She had no one there that had standing before the court and before the judge. And number three, widows many times were poor. So she had no money to try and bribe anyone to get her case heard. So Jesus describes a situation where there's a widow and a judge and she has some sort of situation that there's been an injustice in her life. There's an adversary described here, someone who has come up against her, has persecuted her in some way, has treated her unfairly and unjustly. And she was just waiting for a judge to come into her town so that her case could be heard. But she had to persist in asking, persist in driving that judge crazy, wouldn't leave him alone because she desired it so deeply that justice be served, that her case be heard. Verse four, for a while he was unwilling. The judge is like, who's this, who's this woman shouting and going nuts trying to get here into the court to be heard? Can you guys keep her quiet? Like, can you guys like send her away? I mean, what's the deal here? Wait a second, does she have any money? Oh, she doesn't? Okay, yeah, yeah, send her away. For a while he was unwilling, but later he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or respect man, basically, even though I'm a corrupt dude and I could care less about what God has to say about justice or what man cares about, I'm all about myself and what's good for me, even though that's my situation, Yet, verse 5, because this widow keeps pestering me. Now, I'm a father, and I guess I talk a lot. That's what my kids say. My kids say that, you know, I, I get involved with a conversation at church or so forth, and especially when they were little, you know, they were about this height where they could grab my fingers like this, and I'd be talking with somebody, and they'd go, Dad, Dad, and they'd be yanking on my hand, right? And you're just like, Stop it, stop it. I'm trying to focus here on a conversation. And they were like, dad, dad, but it's very important. And they kept pestering me, right? Until I finally moved my attention from here down to here. And I said, what do you need? What do you want? And that's what this judge was feeling. This woman was driving him crazy, literally. Like nails on a chalkboard, right? She just was like, I got to get this woman off my case. Yet because this widow keeps pestering me, I will give her justice. So she doesn't wear me out by her persistent coming. Then the Lord, Jesus, turns to them and he says, Listen to what the unjust judge says. Will not God grant justice to his elect, to his disciples, to those who have chosen to place their faith and follow Jesus? Will not God grant them justice? Will not God answer them, take care of them who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay to help them? I tell you that he will swiftly grant them justice. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find that faith on earth? Jesus is kind of setting up a contrast. And I believe there's three contrasts that he sets up in this story. Number one, there's the contrast of prayer with discouragement. 
prayer with discouragement. You know, I, I was uh, camping with my kids and my family, and even uh, Mary Ann Livingston was with us. We were up in uh, Oregon on the southern Oregon coast, and we were staying at a campground called Humbug Mountain State Park. Humbug Mountain. Sounds kind of cool, huh? Well, it was cool until they, my family decided we are going to take a hike. Because they decided that this trail, I think they advertised that it was like two miles or something. You know, that sounds pretty easy, right? Two miles. I can hike two miles. I'm a man. Right? So I'm like, I'll go on this hike. So we started out on Humbug Mountain Trail, leaving the campground, and it went straight up. I'm not even kidding. It went straight up for two and a half miles, I think. And I get, you know, I'm starting to go, and I don't know what it is. I'm just like, I'm a big guy, I guess. And, and it just, it hurts to go uphill. Anybody else? Anybody else got to that point? No, Fred? No, you're good? All right. I'll hike with you. We'll see. But all I know is my kids, they were like mountain goats. And they just went da, 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 up the trail. And even before the first, like, five minutes, they were out of sight. I never saw them again. Literally, I never saw him again until we got back to the campground, and I'm like sweaty and depleted and about dead. And my wife and my son, Drew, was kind of hanging with me, but they were like hiking ahead, and I was huffing and puffing, and at that, literally, I, I get to a point where it felt like I had been hiking for eight miles. I'm not even kidding. And I look up, and they had, no kidding, they had every quarter mile pole marked on the trail. And I get to the first thing I'm thinking, it's going to be the summit. And it says, you've gone one quarter of a mile. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever been discouraged, but I was discouraged at that moment. I was like at the point I need to give up, give in. There's no chance I can keep this up for another eight times as many quarter mile poles, right? And my wife and Drew are taking pictures at the quarter mile pole. And they're like, look, we made it to the coral. This is easy. You know, and I'm like, leaning on the pole, and they're like, let's go. And I, I just got here. Give me a minute. I got to recover. Needless to say, we, we find times in our life where we can be discouraged, amen? Where we feel like, man, I thought it was going to be like this, but it's like that. Maybe it's a relationship in your life. Maybe it's something that you started out on, and you thought, hey, life is going to turn out this way, and, and nothing's been going the way you have planned. I don't know what it is. You know what it is. There's discouragement that creeps into our life that causes us to want to be, that causes us to get frustrated and want to quit. And that's the situation that Jesus wants us to understand. He's giving us a principle for the kingdom. Do you realize that, you know, you think like, man, I'm in the kingdom of God. This is great. You make a decision for Jesus. You come into his kingdom. You're a part of his family. And you're like, Life's just going to be smooth from here on out. But you haven't been reading your Bible because that's not what he describes. He says, they persecuted me. What do you think is going to happen to you? They nailed me to a cross. You think it's going to be all roses for you walking in this world? I want to prepare you for what's ahead, Jesus said. You know, society is like a rotting corpse. Think about that. The world and everything it stands for is passing away. 
all the values, all the things that we build our lives on within this world is passing away. It's rotting. God says that the atmosphere in which we live is, is being polluted. And it's affecting, it can affect our spiritual lives as we walk in the kingdom. But when we pray to God, we bring in the pure air of heaven. Do you realize that when we cry out to God, we're asking for God to give us his strength, his encouragement, his perspective, his help. And that's what God wants us to do as his followers. You know, the Bible tells us in 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, there's, there's two verses in the Bible that have two words. So if you've never memorized a Bible verse, I recommend starting here. John eleven thirty five 35 says, Jesus wept. Okay, that's not a real cool verse, but it does tell you that even Jesus, as, as Nate encouraged us earlier, mourned with those that were mourning. This was at the time of Lazarus' death, and Mary and Martha, his sisters, were crying, and they were just destroyed by the fact that their brother had passed away. And Jesus saw that agony, and he wept with them. But 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17 is a verse I want to talk about today, and that's pray constantly. Pray continually. 1 Thessalonians 5.17. Say it with me. Pray constantly. Good, you guys just memorized a verse. You could say, I got verses memorized in the Bible. That's a good place to start, amen? We are to pray constantly. God wants us to pray like we breathe. Think about that. How many of you guys think about breathing? You guys think about breathing or you just do it? Most of the time in our lives, we just do it. Now, when do we start thinking about it? Well, when things get tough, right? Pregnant women about to deliver a baby. I went through the class as a husband and they're like, you got to teach her how to breathe. And I'm thinking, what? How do I teach my wife how to breathe? Because when you're going through agony, suddenly breathing is what you need to think about. You need to think about breathing and keeping your your breath so you don't pass out, right? In the midst of, of trouble or exertion. God wants us to pray like we breathe. He wants, it, he wants it to be so natural that we're having conversations all the time with God. Think about that. Prayer doesn't need to be a formal thing. It could be driving down the road. You don't have to have your eyes closed. Please don't close your eyes when you're driving down the road praying. Now, God can do miracles, and he can, he can guide your car, but I don't trust it, so please keep your eyes open. But let me just say that God wants us to be in the practice of praying continually, that we, that we live in a constant state of communication with our God. Amen? It should be a habit that we establish in our lives. Prayer is much more than words off our lips. It's, it's the desires of our heart. You realize you don't even have to say anything verbally to be praying to God. Can God not read your heart? Can God not know what's being uttered? The Bible even tells us that when we can't even find the words, the Holy Spirit intercedes. The Holy Spirit gives an understanding of the things that are in our heart. Through the Holy Spirit, our prayers are ushered to the throne of God. And he is attentive to our prayers. Amen? So we have a choice. We can pray or we can be discouraged. 
The second contrast I see here is the widows is contrasted with God's elect. Now listen to me very carefully. Jesus did not say that God's people are like this woman. In fact, he said just the opposite. Because we are not like her, we should be encouraged in our praying. He argued from the lesser to the greater. In other words, he said, if the poor widow got what she deserved from a selfish judge, how much more? That's what I want you to focus on here. How much more, Jesus is saying, will God's children receive from a loving father all that they ask for? Now, I want you to understand, the woman was a stranger. But we, who have placed our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we're not strangers to God. No, we are children of God. The widow had no access to the judge. You remember why? Those three reasons? She was limited in her ability to get to the judge. But not God's children. We have open access that has been provided by the blood of Jesus Christ. We talked about it earlier in our singing and our worship. Nate shared with us as he was leading communion that we have an access. We can approach the throne of grace with confidence, knowing that we could be heard, knowing that we can approach God's throne. The woman had no friend at court to help get her case on the docket. But the Bible tells us that Jesus is our advocate and our friend. He is the one that is constantly interceding on our behalf. He's constantly advocating for us, for our needs. There's a song that we sing in church that talks about that Jesus is for us, not against us. Amen to that. He's our great high priest who constantly represents us before the throne of God. You know, when we pray, we can open the word of God and we can claim the promises of God that are in here. We can basically say, God, you've promised to never leave me or forsake me. You've promised to meet all of my needs according to your riches. You've promised me that you're going to be my comfort in times of need and struggle. We can claim the promises of God. The widow had no promises she could claim. She had no standing before the court. Probably the greatest contrast I see is the widow came to a court of law but we get to come as God's children to a throne of grace. She pled out of her poverty, but we have all the riches of Christ. We share in the riches of Christ. Read Ephesians chapter 2. We are co-heirs with Jesus. The point's clear. If we, if we fail to pray, our condition spiritually will be just like that of the poor widow. Just like that, we will be in that situation if we don't pray. Jesus wants his people to be praying. That's why he tells this story. That, in, that should encourage us to pray. The final contrast I see in this story is the judge is contrasted with the father. Now, do you think that the father is like the judge in the story, or is he the opposite? Hopefully you've been paying attention. The judge that is represented here was a what? Not a God-fearing man. He didn't care about people. He's self-centered. He's not very compassionate. He's not loving. The only reason he responds is because the nail's on the chalkboard and he's annoyed. That's the only way to get his attention. But God is the exact opposite. 
He's attentive to our cries for help. And he cares about every one of our situations. So you tell me, how can we explain God's inaction? Have you ever cried out to God in a situation of need and felt like there was no response? All over the world, people claim that as a reason why they've given up faith in God. He just isn't working. But what we don't see is that God is always working on behalf of, the, of his people. If you make a request that's within his will, it is yes and amen in Jesus Christ. Now, we may not always see his working the way we want it done. You know, your kids sometimes come to you as a, a parent and say, Mom, Dad, I want, I, want, I want a snack, and I want it on my terms. But you've gone to the grocery store, and you've, you've thought about your children and their needs and their wants, and you've purchased some snacks, but they aren't always exactly what your children are asking for. It's going to be on your terms because you're a loving parent. You're going to give them some sort of good thing, but it may not be the way that they perceived it. And you can become disgruntled if you don't see God working in a way that you want him to work. But who's God, you or him? Who knows best, a little three-year-old or the parent? You know, that's what we need to think about. God is always at work. Romans 8, 28 tells us in the Bible that God works all things out for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. Do we believe that promise? Do we believe that truth? God is always working. The moment we make a request that is within his will. Now verse 8, the end of verse 8 is very interesting because you know what it says? It says this, Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find that faith on earth? What's being said there? Jesus is saying as the Son of Man is about to come back, Will there be any faithful people left on this earth? Will there be any people who are continuing to devote themselves to prayer? Or will faith be abandoned? You know, in Luke 17, he's told about these events. Jeff talked about it last week. There'll be one in the, in the, in the bed. One is taken and one is left. There'll be one grinding at the mill. One is taken, one is left. What is left at the end? The emphasis is the end times will not be great days of faith. There were only eight people saved in Noah's day. In Lot's day, only four made it out of Sodom. And one looked back and, and perished. You remember Lot's wife turned to a pillar of salt. If you read the New Testament, passages like 1 Timothy chapter 4 and 2 Timothy chapter 3 paint a very dark picture of the last days. Even though our understanding is we are living in the kingdom of God, God says that as things draw to a close within this earth age and his return is imminent, it's going to get ugly. It's going to get dark. And his challenge to his people, that's you and I, is are we going to continue to be people of faith? Are we going to continue to be people of prayer? Let it be so. Let us be found faithful. God instructs us to persist in prayer. My question to you is, how's your prayer life? Do you devote yourself to prayer? Or do you just kind of like, you know, I, 
I can put that off. I, it's not a priority. Yeah, I try and read the Bible once in a while, but praying, I just haven't got there yet. I don't understand that. Jesus wants us to come to him like a father who loves us and who is just desiring our hearts to be in line with him. Verse 9, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and looked down on everyone else. Two men went up to the temple complex to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. I'm going to stop real quick. He just painted a picture of like the spiritual elite and the lowest of sinners. The ones who go to church and, and to the synagogue and, and who are faithful and those who are the rubbish of society. That's who he's painting a picture of. Verse 11, the Pharisee took his stand and was praying like this, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, greedy, unrighteous, adulterers, or even like this tax collector over here. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I give. But the tax collector standing far off, he wouldn't even come close to the assembly. He was standing at a distance, would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but kept striking his chest, saying, God, turn your wrath from me, a sinner. Do you see the contrast here? The Pharisee was all about himself and his self-righteousness, all the things that he did to supposedly impress God. And the tax collector recognized his need, recognized his condition, of falling short before the glory of God. He was a sinner, and he was in need of repentance. He said, I'm not even worthy to be in your presence. I need help, God. I turn to you. There's no one else. Verse 14, Jesus tells us what the result is. I tell you, this one went down to his house justified. Which one? The one who beat his chest, the one who said, turn your wrath from me, God. I'm a sinner. I need you. That one went down to his house justified rather than the other because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. You know, he's, he really is painting a picture of two people that are bankrupt before God. You know, it's like, it's like we owe God, and somebody might go, man, you owe God like a million bucks. I only owe God like $20. But the reality is we all owe God. We're all bankrupt before God. None of us can pay. None of us can pay up what is owed. And so we start to compare ourselves and our debt against one another instead of looking at the fact that we can never match up with the debt that we owe God. The Bible says it this way in Romans chapter 3, verse 23 says, for all have sinned and fallen short. We're bankrupt before a holy God, before the glory of God. And because of that sin, Romans 6, 23 says, for the wages of sin is death. What is the payment for sin? It's eternal separation from a holy God. We can't be in his presence on our own credentials, on our own earning it. God says you can never earn perfect righteousness. There's only one way we can get there, and that's through the blood of Christ. 
through a perfect sacrifice. A perfect lamb of God had to come from heaven to earth to present himself on our behalf. He is the great atonement for our sins. He's the perfect substitution and took on the wrath of God, the wrath that we rightfully deserve for all of our sins. He took it upon himself. It says it bore in his body on a cross so that we could have the righteousness of God imputed into our account. It's like God took his bank account and put it into ours. The moment that we place our faith and trust in what Jesus has done. I want to I quote Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. It says, For by grace you are saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's a gift from God. Not by works, lest any of you boast. No man can boast before God. This Pharisee was boasting before God. Look at all the things I do. Of course God's got to accept me. I'm amazing. It's not how it works. God is not impressed with our filthy rags. And that's what our righteous acts are to him. They're filthy rags. Do you understand who God is? I I see three delusions on the part of this Pharisee. Number one, he was deluded about who God was, who God is. The Pharisee's prayer was concerned with telling God that he was a good man. What a good man I am. Well, he's not seeing God clearly because no man is good in comparison to a holy God. Number two, he was deluded about himself. He thought he was accepted by God because of all the good things that he did. But the Bible makes it clear there is no works, no amount of good deeds that we can do to get right with God. That's an offense to him sending his son Jesus to a cross. Do you understand that? Every religion out there is made up of a system of works to try and impress a deity. Do you realize that? Islam, Buddhism, Mormonism, you name the man-made religion out there, every one of them. Even Catholicism has, has got these things where you gotta do these works because that's going to earn favor between you and God. God says that's not the truth. God says there's one mediator between God and man, and it's Jesus Christ. God says this, I am the way, Jesus said, the truth and the life. No one gets to the Father except through me. It's an offense to the cross. Why would God send his only son to endure suffering on a cross if there was another way to get right with God? If there was just another way to impress God with all of your good deeds and get to heaven. No, that's a lie. It's a trap of Satan. God wants us to understand that Jesus is the only way. If you have not placed your faith in Jesus Christ here today, maybe you're relying on the fact that, hey, I come to church. So what? Filthy rags. Hey, I was raised in a good Christian family. Doesn't matter. Filthy rags. Hey, I do a lot of good things for the poor could care less, filthy rags. Do you realize that you're in need of Jesus? You are a desperate man, like this man in this story, this beggar, this tax collector. He was begging God for mercy. He understood his real condition, and he responded appropriately. Do you? Do you understand your real condition before God? If you don't have Jesus, you haven't ever prayed the sinner's prayer, said, God, I am a sinner. 
and I repent of my sin. God, by your mercy and by your grace, forgive me of my sin. I embrace your free gift of salvation that is found in your son, Jesus Christ. And by him alone, my faith and trust is in him alone, nothing else. I trust in him to forgive me of my sins and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. If you've never prayed that prayer, today can be the day of salvation for you. Today can be the day where you move from separation from God, from a position of, of want and delusion like this Pharisee had, to a position of being embraced as a child of God and all the riches that come with that. I pray that you talk to someone you saw up here on the stage, myself, Talk to us and tell us, you know, today is the day that I want to make that decision. We can pray with you. We can encourage you about some next steps to take in your life. He was deluded about who God was, who he was. And lastly, he was deluded about what gets you, what gets you right with God. He was deluded about what it looked like to be justified. I'm running out of time. We're going to wrap up this morning. God calls us to maintain a proper perspective in life. My question to you, how do you see God? How do you see yourself? And how do you see others? Verse 15, some people were even bringing infants to him so he might touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. Jesus, however, invited them. Let the little children come to me and don't stop them because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I assure you, whoever does not welcome the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Do you realize this wasn't the first time that, that the disciples became a hindrance of people coming to Jesus? Think about this. They tried to get rid of people. They wanted to send away the crowd that was hungry. God, send them away. Jesus, send them away. Let them go find their own food. Jesus like, no, we'll feed them. Let's feed them. They're like, where are we going to find enough food for this crowd? I'm just going to, five loaves and two fishes. I'm just going to pray. It's going gonna, it's gonna to just happen. I'm Jesus. Do you not understand who I am? The disciples were trying to get rid of the problem. They, they perceived all these people around Jesus as just a big nuisance and hassle, a big problem. How many of you guys sometimes see people in that light? I do when I'm driving and there's traffic. These are all problems, Right? But we can't walk around as Christians thinking that people are the problem. No, people are who Jesus loves. People who are, are those that Jesus came to save. Let's see others the way that he wants us to see, him, see them. They tried to stop a Canaanite woman from asking Jesus to heal her daughter. The 12 haven't quite gotten the, the compassion of their master yet, but it would come in time. It would come in time. Jesus wants us to understand that we need to have the same priorities that he had. And our priority needs to be people. Our priority needs to be what's precious to him. The children were precious to Jesus. Why? Because they represent life. They're individuals that are important. Society might not think much of little kids, but Jesus does. Look at our society. Look at the laws that have been passed. Do we think much of little people, maybe the ones in the womb, do we think much of those in the womb that God is knitting together? 
in their mother's womb. That's what the psalmist says. Do we think much of that here in America, in our society? Unfortunately not. We have laws that allow people to end that, to keep that from ever coming to fruition and, and being born a life that Jesus values. Let us stand with the right priorities. You know, November's coming up. We have voting coming up. Let the church of God's voice be heard. I'm not saying march on Washington, but maybe that comes a day where it's appropriate. But what I am saying is let's, let's let our voice be heard at the ballot box. Let's let our voice be heard to stand with the values that Jesus says to stand with. Let's not be a hindrance. Let's not be associated with keeping people from coming to Jesus. My question as I close this morning is this, and it's a challenge, it's a challenge to me. And I know that it will be a challenge to you as well. Are you an obstacle to people coming to Jesus? Think about that. Are there other things that you prioritize over people that God has placed in your life? Do you find a way to just be annoyed with them, to cut off relations with them, to not seek reconciliation so that you can be a light and a voice of hope in their life? My question is, are you an obstacle or are you pointing others to him? Are you pointing others to him? Let it be true that we, as God's people, are, are encouraged this morning to understand that we must be persistent in our prayers, that we must have perspective on who God is and who he's made us to be, and that we need to prioritize people as we walk in this kingdom that he's established on earth with his blood, and that one day he's going to come back again to physically rule and reign on this earth with those of us who have placed our trust and our faith in him, we look forward to that day with great anticipation. Let me just say it this way. Don expects that any moment. We have lots of conversations. He thinks September is the time. So this September is possible, but every day is possible, amen? Jesus is coming soon, and we need to be ready. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I just thank you for your word this morning. I thank you for the truth. I thank you for the reminder. I thank you for the encouragement that your word is. God, help us to understand that we need to be persistent in our prayers, that we need to be faithful. God, you, you've asked the question, will I find faith on the earth when I come back? God, help, help that answer to be yes, because Crossroads Church was faithful, because the church was faithful to you. God, we long to be faithful. Help us in our prayer life to be praying continually, constantly. And God, you've asked us to have your perspective, to see people in a way that you love them, that you value them, that they need you, and help us to prioritize them, to not be an obstacle to them coming to you, but to prioritize them in our calendar, in our in our money, in our resources, in our time and talent and treasure. God, help us to prioritize what you prioritize. And God, we just thank you for this opportunity to, to be outdoors, to be worshiping you. And God, I just pray that you will continue to open doors 
for your church to be faithful. God, no matter what persecution or what situation we face, as we move forward, God, help your church to remain faithful. In Jesus' name, amen.